0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchal. By now you've probably heard of the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. It's a lock facility for delinquent boys located in Middletown, Connecticut. Now only a small percentage of youth in the state's juvenile justice system are ever sent to CJTS, which is operated by the State Department of Children and Families. But the annual cost to run the facility, more than $30 million last year, has thrust the training school into the spotlight during a time when fewer boys are being committed there and when state lawmakers and the governor are desperate to find ways to Cut state spending. At the same time, advocates for children have been warning policymakers even before the training school opened in 2001 that incarcerating young people doesn't do them any good in the long run. And the research backs that up. Now, Governor Malloy told WNPR last December he wanted to close CJTS by July 2018. Will that happen? Today where we live, we check in with youth advocates, lawmakers, and community providers on the proposed plan to close the training school. And whether the money saved will be used to reform how the state and community partners treat youth who get in trouble with the law. Now coming up, we'll ask about what programs exist now to keep juveniles from reoffending. And there's also the question, what about the few youth who do need a secure facility? What is an appropriate alternative to the Connecticut Juvenile Training School? and later we'll hear from national experts on juvenile justice policies across the country. You can join the conversation 860-275-7266, email where we live at wmpr.org. and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First, of all, let's hear about Connecticut youth and the programs that exist here. Joining me in studio now is Laura Herskovich. She's deputy director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. For those of us uh, who don't know a lot about the Juvenile Justice Alliance, tell us about your work. Sure. The Connecticut Juvenile Justice
2: Alliance is about 15 years old or so. We are a small staff and a very large coalition that's focused really on decriminalizing Connecticut's youth. Um, so the you know, We make sure that kids are being treated safely, fairly, and effectively and are advocating, are very active in the policy arena to keep kids out of the juvenile and criminal justice system in the first place and then making sure the kids who are in are, are safe and and that it's working.
0: I know uh, the training school has been on your group's radar for some time. It has. Uh, tell us about the, the youth that are sent there. Well, so the, there's, there are a whole lot
2: of myths about the young people who are in Connecticut's juvenile justice system. Typically, you know, when you uh, are asked a question about juvenile justice, I work for the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance, you know, the reactions that I get are, oh, well, those are the bad kids. And um, actually, most of the kids who go through Connecticut's juvenile justice system are are passing through for really pretty minor nonviolent stuff. Um, we talk a lot about that there's There's a whole lot of room to shrink. We've done a good job, and I'm sure we'll get to that, but there's a lot more room to shrink. So the volume of how many children circle through our justice system in any given year is in the neighborhood of about 10,000. And if you picture an upside-down pyramid, so that's the top of the pyramid, all of the kids who get engaged with law enforcement in one way or another, when we get down to what we refer to as the deep end of the system, so you might get arrested, you might see a probation officer, you might then see a judge, you might then get adjudicated delinquent, which is the euphemism in the juvenile system for convicted, which is what it would be in the adult side. By the time you get down to the level of who ends up out of that 10,000, in the juvenile training school or the equivalent for girls, um, there's a, a locked facility called Journey House that's run by a private nonprofit provider, which would be great to, to talk about as well. We're, we're talking about literally about 250 young men and in the neighborhood probably of 20 to 30 young women. So it's a very, very, very tiny percentage of all of the kids who are coming through in the first place.
0: Now, why is there a push now to close the training school? <laughs> you know, I had said in my intro, advocates yeah. have been meant. You know, they've been saying for some time that putting kids in a lock facility—it's very much like a jail. When you give a, when you go and have a tour, it is. It doesn't help kids who have gotten in trouble with the law, and statistics show mm-hmm. that um, they do reoffend. Um, I'm quoting here now: the Connecticut Mirror in a recent report, the state for the first time released recidivism rates for youth who've left the training school. And of the 48 youth who left the training school during the first six months of 2014, 40 were rearrested. And between 2011 and 2014, rearrest rates increased from 75 percent to 83 percent. Yes.
2: Yes. We know for sure that there is a much better way to handle serious misbehavior, a much better way, more effective and much less expensive. There's a terrific report that just came out of Harvard uh called The Future of Youth Justice, a Community-Based Alternative to the Youth Prison Model. And a direct quote from that report is, It is difficult to find an area of U.S. policy where the benefits and costs are more out of balance, where the evidence of failure is clearer, or where we know with more clarity what we should be doing differently. So Connecticut is not alone in in this question. Uh, I I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it was – there was a national commission on on uh, juvenile justice and it was as going as far back as 1973 if i'm remembering the date right but it was the early 70s where then the policy was clear we america any of our states should not be opening any more large prison like facilities for our young people so we we know this um you know why now uh, it, Momentum, probably, and leadership, right so this none of this is really rocket science. This is a question of um, of our elected officials making the decision to treat our kids with more respect, with more dignity um and finally, understanding the the enormous body of research out of academia, thankfully has also caught up, and um, we now have ten to fifteen years of experience with really significant. Juvenile justice reform in the state of Connecticut. And I think this 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 has always been the obvious next step for advocates. Uh, it was really the first step for advocates. But, but now it's the obvious next step, I think, for all of us that um, DCF, to its credit, has done a, a, a great job of getting a lot of the young men and young women out of an incarcerative setting who shouldn't have been there in the first place, we would argue. Um, but now <clears throat> it's just really clear that to run a facility for the cost that it is, as you said, over $30 million for in the neighborhood of 40-ish young men. Um, Even if, honestly, even if it was $5,000 to run it, or even if it was free to run it, we still know now that it's not the most effective uh, approach. So the bottom line is that if we want to do a better job as a state of setting our young people up to succeed, instead of setting them up to fail, we have models around the country. We even have models here in our own state of how to do it better and how to do it less expensively. So I don't fully understand why we've all turned our attention, but I'm delighted that the governor has pledged to close the Connecticut Juvenile Training School by July 2018. And now the work is figuring out the roadmap to get there on time, um, so that you know we still have, uh, so that we can set our kids up to, to succeed.
0: And we're going to hear more later in the show about the work that's being done, a legislative committee, which I know the Juvenile Justice Alliance is a member of. Um, and we're going to hear from Representative Tony Walker in just a bit. But the reason we wanted to talk with you, Laura, as Deputy as, um, Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance, um, so much discussion from policymakers, from people in the court system, from public defenders, um, advocates for youth of what to do with the training school, how to reform the system. But you guys asked youth who've experienced the juvenile justice system what they think. Tell us about what you found in this new report.
2: Yeah, so this new report is called Walk in Our Shoes. Youth share their ideas for changing Connecticut's juvenile justice system. So we are as I said a large coalition that is comprised of all of the actors that you just mentioned um, and we really are committed to engaging youth voice in amplifying youth voice because they are the ones who know the most about the system they're the ones who have the biggest stake in the system and they're the ones with really terrific vision so what we did was in order to to find out what they think we, we ran around the state and met with a number of different uh, nonprofit service providers and other organizations and talked to lots of young men and young women who have had involvement in um Connecticut's juvenile justice system to ask them the question of what will help them um and get them more prominently engaged um in, in policy reform. So they you know they're they're fantastic and terrific when you show them that that respect and invite their vision in um, they talked a lot about prevention. You know, again, this isn't rocket science, and they know, um, they, they know the right, all of the right answers. So they talked about prevention and investing in their own communities. Um, they were shocked, really. I think maybe we used the phrase "taken aback," um, and that's certainly true. They were really shocked to find out how much it costs to run the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. And we asked them, "Well, what what
0: should Connecticut be doing instead?" And they talk about mentorship. What was interesting to me when I read, to me when I read the report, um, you know, I think it was a, a young uh, girl who uh, mentioned that, you know, after she got in trouble with the law, you know, there was a lot of outreach to her. She was able to get connected to a job. Yes. And she felt guilty because she had friends who have not been involved in the juvenile mm-hmm. justice system who aren't getting that same outreach. Yes. Yes. In, indeed. And and really this is about re
2: this is a, this is about priorities. And so this is about taking the significant dollars that we're spending on a model that we know is broken, mm-hmm. just really kind of flushing that money down into the sewer system um, because we know it's not working. And instead, these young people are saying, we want that money to invest in our housing, in community revitalization, in helping us find jobs, in uh, having apprenticeship-type programs and skill building, in neighborhood programs. So even just this morning, I was listening to an interview of a young man. Where is his name? Uh, He's an opera singer. He's a baritone who has now sung at the Met. Ryan Speedo Green from Virginia originally. And he was talking about getting into some misbehavior in school. He was in fourth grade. He showed up at school and greeted his new – he's an African-American man. He greeted his petite, white teacher by on day one by throwing the desk and the chair at her. And her reaction was not—this is the whole point—her reaction was not to call the school resource officer, was not to call the principal. Her reaction was, okay, you can learn from sitting on the floor. And when you're ready to get your desk and your chair back, you're welcome to those. She taught all the students, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, and just was really um, a, a terrific teacher and inclusive teacher, a respectful teacher— um, he ended up getting into some issues. At, at any rate, he got exposed at one point to opera, and he heard, um, I don't remember who he heard, the mezzo-soprano at the Met, and he, he said it changed his life. Um, and now he's a successful professional opera singer. So these young people here in Connecticut were saying the same things. Please expose us to a wide variety of activities, of, of interests, so that we can find out what each of us cares deeply
0: about, so all kinds of things like that. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. I'm speaking with Laura Herskovich, Deputy Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Uh, they released a report recently, uh, Walking in Our Shoes, where the youth uh, who've experienced Connecticut's juvenile justice system um, offer up suggestions to policymakers about how to reform the system, how to prevent kids from getting into the system. And we're going to hear more about that report uh, in a little bit. But, you know, before we go to break, Laura, um, part of the report also, you hear youth saying that, you know, their parents need more support. What, can, what kind of resources? can their parents receive uh, to help their kids?
2: Yeah, these young people understand that they're a part of a family and they care, and not surprisingly, like we all do, very deeply about their families. Um, they also understand, I think, as probably every single one of us does, we all just came out of the Thanksgiving break and we have the, the fun family dynamics that everyone um, is a part of. So they had talked about um, exposing parents to helping them become more effective disciplinarians. Um, So some of the interventions might be um, the kinds of things that our families are facing at home, whether it's connected to hunger, poverty, um, jobs, that sort of thing, but also family dynamics and that kind of therapeutic approach can also be very helpful to help everyone in the family figure out how to collectively become a healthier unit. So, you know, people don't realize that we struggle with, um, really fundamental issues, sometimes here in Connecticut. There's a, a juvenile review board. So again, Connecticut has done a really good job of, so far, still far to go, of shrinking the system. So, um, and I want to be sensitive to the fact that you said we have to take a break, but um, we've done a good job of keeping a lot of the minor, nonviolent misbehavior out of the systems through um, juvenile review boards. So if it's minor misbehavior, anyway, there was a young man in a in a city in Connecticut. He did really well in juvenile review board. He was, went back to school and so on. He won a little bit of money, and this was a, a stipend to reward him for for participating in the program successfully and so on. And they said, wow, what are you going to spend the money on? What's the treat that you're going to buy yourself? And his answer was, we're going to spend it on doing laundry. So sometimes the kinds of challenges that our families are facing, like we're just not aware that that is in our backyards. And sometimes it's families need that kind of support mm-hmm. to,
0: to put nutritious food on the table and, and so on. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Again, we're speaking to Laura Herskovich of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. We're going to continue the conversation. After the break, we're going to talk to policymakers and community providers who are working with youth in the juvenile justice system. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. So how Connecticut improve its juvenile justice system? Significant changes have already occurred, including raise the age. The law moves 16 and 17-year-olds charged with crimes out of the adult prison system. Now, the Juvenile Justice Policy and Oversight Committee, or JPOC, was created by the Connecticut General Assembly to study the effects of raise the age, and now its members are studying ways to continue reforming the system, including how the state should proceed with plans to close the Connecticut Juvenile Training School in Middletown. To tell us more, Representative Tony Walker from New Haven is joining us by phone. She's co-chair of the Juvenile Justice Policy and Oversight Committee, or JPOC, as well as the Legislature's Appropriations Committee. Representative Walker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us about the work. I don't think a lot of people know about the, the JPOC and, and all the people that are part of this process to not just look at the training
1: school, but to look at juvenile justice reform uh, generally. Uh, thank you, yeah, thank you for that question. We started this really this um this journey um of reform back in two thousand and seven when uh senator then mayor harp Sen- then Senator harp and I put together a coalition of um of advocates, leaders, and agencies to talk about how do we change the reform system. And during that process, we uh, created another team that JPOC is out of. And in, uh, leading that was um, Judge Lawler and Judge Keller from the um, from the judicial system, uh, court supported services, bill, uh, bill Carbone, Department of Children and Families, Department of Mental Health and D- DOC SDE, and several other providers. What we did was we we looked at each component and we started with reform and the development of ways to handle uh, status offenders and children coming through the system, Um, and that reform was done by the uh, judicial department. Then we started working on mental health services and education and housing, and one of the things that was kind of surprising to us as we went through that was we found out that mental health services were not afforded to kids unless they came through the criminal justice system and the state. So that was part of it and Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services did not pick them up until 18. So over the years from that time till the point where we actually passed the legislation, we felt we had to build the infrastructure of addressing uh, reform for the juvenile justice system with the expectation that we would reduce the number of kids going through the system Um, by changing the the policies and we'd also save the state an enormous amount of money because we would defer a lot of kids back into the community. Right now we're really on JPOC. We're looking at what are the options? Do we have to have large institutional care? How do we reduce it? And then also how do we take some of those monies that we are able to save by closing CJTS since the governor has made a commitment to doing that um, to try and reinvest it back in the community so that it can continuous number of kids in the system would be reduced.
0: So a lot of the work that you're doing now relates to the governor's plan to close the training school by July 2018? Correct. And so what has been, um, what is the process? I know DCF has a, I guess they consider it a a final plan. You guys are still working on it. But what do you think of DCF's plan um, to close the training school because the population has been reduced significantly through the years, but also because it does cost
1: a lot of money to run that facility? Well, I thank DCF for um, sitting with us and being part of the committee and also making sure that the JPOC was part of the discussion. Um, What we do is we have small groups that are actually talking about the specific um, items such as data collection, which is critical for us because we have to, um, as you know, we have some problems with our revenue in the state of Connecticut, and we've got about a billion dollar shortfall. So we don't have extra money, and as appropriations co-chair, that's a key issue that we have to Look at by doing looking at the data we can do cost-based analysis and actually look at the services that we provide to make sure those services are in line with helping us to reduce the number of kids and is effective then we look at um, a variety of other things like education and how we also invest in community services that are local so many of these kids can't um, have the opportunity to get the services they need by still staying at home which also helps the the need for having an institutional facility like CJTS. We do believe that there's probably going to be a need for a smaller um, facility, maybe 10, 15 beds, but we think in in due time, as we change the way we assess children um, coming through the system to make sure that the way we are addressing their needs is very specific to who they are and what is um, the problem that they're having in their life or experiencing, and making sure also that the agencies that we are contracting also have the ability to provide those. So it's, I mean, it's it's a continuous process through um, each meeting, and each time we look at what are other people doing, are we mirroring that? Is this, is this going to be? Is the fidelity of that program something that we can do in? Connecticut to make sure that we're addressing our kids specifically and also making sure that we, um, we are partnering with those agencies and the departments to make sure that we all do uh, this, are walking in the same direction.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa I'm speaking with State Representative Tony Walker. She's co-chair of the Juvenile Justice Policy and Oversight Committee. Uh, They've been uh, studying and working on juvenile justice reform in the state, including how the state will move forward to close the training school in Middletown. Um, Now, Representative Walker, I did speak to Deputy Commissioner Fernando Munez of of DCF um, earlier this year at a list community meeting in Hartford. Here's what he had to say when it uh, came to what they would do with the savings from closing that school eventually. The majority
2: of the spending at CJTS is staff salaries, uh, and so we would need approval to be able to move any of those dollars into services. um, And so that's not something that an executive branch
0: agency can do on our own, uh, but we can certainly recommend it. So it sounded like to me that um uh, the deputy commissioner Muniz says that you know there will be savings but it's going to be up to the legislature and the governor uh, to commit those uh that savings into services. So I mean can you explain that process to us a little bit more because we know the state deficit just keeps
1: growing each year. I mean how challenging will be that for you when the school does close if it does? Well, I as um as um deputy commissioner Munez talked about he said part of it was uh... staffing and i believe in some regards we can we can move a lot of those staff members into community services and start to look at um, how do we develop those in um, evaluating kids and making sure that they stay in that pro- in that system. I think the other thing is in reinvesting, again, we go back to looking at what are they providing because it is a lot of it is uh, staff salaries, but it also is in-house services. And I believe one of the numbers that I heard from uh, the commissioner and the deputy commissioner was that they would try and take six point nine million or maybe seven million and reinvest that money back into um the services that obviously are the way that we're going to be able to uh reduce the population that needs to be in CJTS. And that is still uh something that we're all working on. And um and the, it it's making It is taking time, um, but I think the most important part is that we collect the data to see which ones have been effective and which ones are not really working.
0: Now, DCF Commissioner Joak Katz and Deputy Commissioner Muniz uh, both said that they'd be welcome to to coming on the show, and that'll happen in December. So we look forward to hearing from them. Um, But I wanted to ask you, Representative Walker, I mean, I know you've been an advocate for uh, juveniles for some time, especially those that find themselves in uh, the juvenile justice system. You know, are some of the gaps that have existed um, in the community just been really um, striking to you? I mean, I was reading the report that the community, uh, the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance put together, and and one of the... um, they were sent back to the training school because he had nowhere else to go,
1: yeah. a locked facility. Well, people, people don't understand many of these kids are... Uh Experiencing poverty. Many of the kids are also experiencing being um, uh, wards of, of institutional care in other various ways. And so, what we don't look at is are we fulfilling the, the needs for the, each one of the children that we, we've, we've been working with? And as you read that report, I thought it was fantastic because the kids exhibited such um, uh, maturity in looking at where are the gaps that we have not been able to fulfill. And, And housing is one because many of the kids are chronically homeless, and we don't exactly understand what to do with that. I know many people have tried to create systems, but when um, that – that divert kids into housing, but most of those housings are for kids that are 18 and older. We have very few facilities out there that provide um, housing for kids independent without being a ward of the state for them um, under under that age. And many of the ways that they have been diverted have been put into foster care systems. So uh, is that the best way for it? We have, to, we have to look at that and make sure that the needs that the kids um, are exhibiting, in the homeless state that they're in is the only way to address it through is through foster care, and we have not heard enough detail on that.
0: I also understand the the DCF plan that they've come um, together with in terms of closing the training school. They now are going to implement a new risk assessment to make sure that Correct. only youth that require secure treatment are placed in a facility like CJTS. I mean, Correct. why why now? Why wasn't that done several years ago?
1: I, I can't I can't speak to that. Mm-hmm. I just know that from the JPOC committee when we started listening to. Um, Court Supported Services Division and Department of Children and Families and Department of Mental Health Addiction Services, we found out that each one of them had different assessment tools. And for efficiency and making sure that, that as a child moves from one system to another to make sure that the data and the way they are being evaluated is continual for both all three agencies, we asked them to come up with a uniformed um, Co- a cooperative uh, assessment tool and uh, CSS, Court Supported Services Division and DCF are starting to come to the end of it. They feel that they have actually developed it and I think that's going to be uh, critical for us in this, in this process of reform. Then that way a child actually gets the services moving from one system to another. And that's where we have the, the pitfalls, I think, if they're in, court, in court-supported services division going into DCF. They don't assess them on the same um, issues and with the, the same uh, measuring devices that they need to. And this, I think, is going to be really helpful for us to really see, are we really doing this system uh, justice in the way we've done it in the past? And I think this, this collaboration will be fantastic for us.
0: Laura Herskovich? Uh, well,
2: I, I think I, I agree with everything Representative Walker is saying and um, a- am also surprised at some of the things that we're considering cutting-edge reform right now are things certainly that we wish had happened 10, yeah. 20 years ago and in some cases like the opening of the training school which happened during former Governor Rowland's administration wish we wish had never happened in the first place. Um, <clears throat> so certainly we're glad that there – Moving in the right direction now, um, it also speaks to me to the really incredible need and opportunity to, as I said before, continue to shrink the overall volume of Connecticut's juvenile justice system. So we, not everybody knows, and I won't get into a great level of of detail because it gets complex very quickly, but Connecticut was one of three states remaining in the country that recent, very recently treated all 16 and 17-year-olds mm-hmm. as adults, no matter what offense they were accused of. And You know, the whole point of a juvenile justice system compared to an adult criminal justice system, and this started at the turn of the 20th century, was that we recognize that kids – have not finished developing that the brain has not finished developing most of the kids who en- who start out engaged with the juvenile justice system will age out of misbehavior so if any one of us thinks back to the things that we did when we were teenagers i I joke that i don 't ever go into detail about this because i don 't know the statute of limitations I just right, but think about the those kinds of things. You know, as I said, about 10,000 kids um, then were in the system. We were worried in Connecticut that raising the age from 16 to 18 – treating young people as young people instead of throwing them away into the adult criminal justice system was going to double the size and was going to really disable our system and in fact because we're doing a decent job of keeping kids out who don't need to be there in the first place, actually the volume of Connecticut's juvenile justice system today is lower than it was before we raised the age. So instead of jumping to 20,000 or 25,000 cases, we're lower now at 10-ish, 9 to 10-ish than we were when we only we 're looking at under sixteen year olds so if you know half of but still half of the young people coming through the system are you know it 's minor typical adolescent behavior that we have chosen as a culture as a state, and really as a country to to criminalize mm-hmm. and we 're really trying to push the pendulum back toward a um, a healthier place, a saner place, a less expensive place, a place that respects um, the potential of, of young people to, to thrive. Still, last thing I'll say is that one in five of the peop- young people who are referred into Connecticut's juvenile justice system are referred there by one of their public schools. Mm. It's 20%. I mean, that is just unacceptable. So we still have a long way to go, but moving in the right direction.
0: This is where we live. We're talking about juvenile justice reform here in Connecticut. Now, I know we, we focus a lot about the training school because of the, the cost and, and the, that research shows it's not a good place to send kids of them who have um, some type of, of mental illness but there's a lot of community providers um, in the state too that are doing work helping youth that are in the juvenile justice system uh, one of those is joining us right now uh, Maureen Price Borland she's executive director of community partners in action Maureen welcome to the show
3: thank you thanks, so, thanks for having me so
0: tell us about community partners <coughs> in action um, where your location located and then you know who are the youth that you're helping
3: so our organization is an organization that's been around for 140 years, basically uh, partnering with the state for many of those years, and our key focus has been around changing perceptions, providing opportunities, and advocating for reform in the criminal justice system. And so historically, we had uh, provided services primarily to uh, the um, adult population. And uh, somewhere in 2000, we started uh, providing services for the juvenile population. And at one point, we uh, ran uh, five facilities, two in Hartford for females and uh, three in the Hamden area for males. Um, As a result of the budget cut combined with, quite frankly, I think the reduction in the need for services at this level, uh, we are down to currently two programs. one in Hamden and one in Hartford. Um, And so as a community provider, we have been, uh, I think, part of the framework of helping to um, provide those alternative services that were discussed.
0: So when you go from five to two programs, um, what has been the impact on on, on young people who are in the system and need a place to go, need support
3: and treatment? So, you know, I want to start off by saying if um, all the work that's been done by the advocates, including Tony Walker, Laura, Martha Stone, and on and on, who have done some phenomenal work in advocating for kids, is that we have gotten to the place where we're seeing success. We're decriminalizing kids, and that's the goal. And so uh, despite that, as a community provider, our goal is not to really just have a facility for the sake of having a facility. But it's what's in the best interest of the kids. I think the challenge for us at this point is that we are continuing to hear stories, however, of kids who are falling in gaps. Mm. And there's a lot of couch surfing that's going on. And uh, kids who are left in vulnerable situations uh, making some difficult decisions and choices. And I think because the system works so well, in the uh, front end, by decriminalizing, reducing the numbers, we haven't caught up with making sure that we identify who these kids are and what their current needs uh, may be. And so my sense is that no one knows for sure what the, the, the impact is and exactly where the kids are and what their challenges are, other than hearing it from community members who are talking about kids who are left out there, quite vulnerable on the street, uh, making some poor choices and poor decisions.
0: Well, Representative Walker, you touched on this earlier. You know, how would you characterize um, the relationships that community providers um, are they able to reach out to your office uh, to JPOC uh, to um, you know mention these concerns and how do you address those gaps?
1: Absolutely. Um, I want to say that um, Maureen uh, has done a phenomenal job of being a partner in this, and and many of the other providers have done that too. It's important that we start to ask what are the needs that they are seeing, because the organizations like Maureen's um, actually are the ones that provide the services, and she's actually she's extremely correct when she says a lot of kids fall through the cracks. I see a lot of the kids, because I work in an alternative high school program, and I see a lot of the kids who have fallen through the cracks who can point where they where they missed connection so it's going to be up to us now as we look at providing the services on the back end then we have to make sure that the providers are part of the j-pod conversation and as we see that information um, being presented to us it's up to them to say well yes it works that way or no it doesn't exactly work that way and that's the way we get the information and then we facilitate the process of how we make that change
2: Ahead, I think we really can't um understate the need for a, a deeper richer investment in in those kinds of services in prevention. So one of the stories we heard when we talked to young people across the state was a young woman and about a third of the young people who come into contact with Connecticut's juvenile justice system are female, which mm-hmm. also surprises folks. So this one young woman told us that she was having trouble in school. She started skipping school. She ended up being put on probation connected to truancy because she was chronically skipping school, under uh, having trouble there. While she was on probation, she was self-medicating using marijuana, was placed on more restrictions. It escalated to the point where she ended up in detention which is not an environment that really anyone wants to be in. Any one of us would also not want to be there. She ran away. Uh, quote, unquote, the charge was assaulting an officer, trying to bring her back to detention where she didn't want to go. And I think any one of us would also resist that uh, that kind of experience as well. She finally ended up at, as I said, what we referred to before um, as the deep end. She was committed delinquent, sent to a residential placement program. And all of that could have been avoided if we had given her a tutor in the first place, from her from her mouth, this is the story she tells us,
0: Maureen.
3: You know, so to follow up to Laura's story, uh, I think one of the things that uh, we've done over these many years as an organization is to try to be responsive to the current needs, and so it is our intent, and we're uh, very deep in planning and opening a residential substance abuse program for kids. And uh, in Hamden, and uh, we should be starting that very early next year. There's a lot of effort and activity going on in planning that. And so there again, it's, I think, realizing and recognizing that it's, it's not about just uh, providing services for the sake of providing it, but Really trying to identify the needed resources and being responsive to it. And that's our commitment as an organization.
0: Before we go to break, I wanted to turn back to Representative uh, Tony Walker. You know, I, I, I wanted to know more about what's the court's role in all of this because it's the judges who then, um, you know, decide if a, a child is going to be committed uh, to the training school or if there's a residential program that exists. Um, it sounds like there are less and less. Um, uh, that's that's uh, happened, um, that are open in the, in recent years. Um, but where, what are, what what options do judges have, especially when we know the judicial branch has been undergoing um, some cuts as well to, to programming? I mean, I'm just curious, Representative Walker, if you can talk a little bit
1: about the court's role. The court's role is to actually be the gatekeeper of how a child, when a child's being brought before them, and making sure that they um, get connected to the services. And that, you're correct, that is one of the key issues and areas that we have to look at and actually figure out because it's important that we ask Department of Children and Families how many kids are coming through the system that you see that are going, that are being, um, that need services, and we also talk, provide those, the, the array of services to the judges and try and pinpoint the specific services that each child needs when they go through. I think right now we are seeing there is um, a major reduction in what is accessible by the judges and it puts them in a very bad position because even though a child may need addiction services there may not be a slot open for them because of the reduction in what's available and they may end up putting them in institutional care as opposed to putting them in the one that is appropriate for their needs at that time and that is one of the big things that we're seeing so Doing something like reinvesting the dollars of CJTS into making sure that the judges, as they evaluate and they sort of triage the needs of the kids there, they make sure that those kids go to the direct appropriate services that are needed, whether it be in residential care or in care in the community, which also helps them to re-engage back with their families. That is where we are right now and making sure that we have enough information from the major agencies, such as judicial, on how do we do it. And when I talk to judges, judges say, I just don't have enough to refer them to. We need more services so that that we can make sure that they're getting addressed as opposed to putting them on a hodgepodge of services just because we have them and this is the only thing that's available.
2: Some of this also, I think, is about culture change. So we also want to uh, inform police departments and inform school administrators and social workers and psychologists about To the degree that there are some services available, let them know what exists so that they don't feel like they have to refer to law enforcement and the judicial branch in order to connect a young person with the things that he or she and or his or her family needs.
0: And Maureen, quickly.
3: Uh, Just to probably uh, piggyback on what uh, uh, Tony Walker said was the fact that our decision to go with the substance abuse program will be funded primarily through Husky and Medicaid services. Versus an opportunity, I think, for the state to invest in a, in a needed service, and I say that only because it became uh, an identified need and recognition on our part that we needed to do so.
0: I want to thank uh, Representative Tony Walker for joining the show. Again, she's uh, co-chair of the Juvenile Justice Policy and Oversight Committee as well as the General Assembly's Appropriations Committee. Representative Walker, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now, coming up, juvenile jails like the Connecticut Juvenile Training School are not common in other states. What took the state so long to consider alternatives? We'll hear from the National Juvenile Law Center after the break, and Laura and Maureen price Borland will stay with us. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at how the state's considering additional reforms to the juvenile justice system, including the closure of the controversial Connecticut Juvenile Training School. In studio with me is Maureen Price-Borland, Executive Director of Community Partners in Action, and Laura Herskovich, Deputy Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Now, how does Connecticut compare with other states? Joining us now by phone is Marsha Levick, Deputy Director and Chief Counsel at the Juvenile Law Center in Pennsylvania. Marsha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So we know you guys follow juvenile justice reform, um, help a lot of kids uh, um, in uh, for their rights uh, in court. And I'm curious, you know, when you look at other states, you know, what are some of the reforms out there and how does Connecticut compare to them?
4: Well, I think the conversation that you and your guests are having this morning is one that we are seeing going on around the country, and I also think that the, the reference to the culture change that we need to be putting in place is also a very apt one. Uh, you know, we're really on the back end now, I would say, coming around about 20 years after the uh, imagined uh, effects of the increase in violent crime in the early 1990s and late 1980s. And I think increasingly we are seeing significant reductions in the use of secure confinement for juveniles in the juvenile justice system. Uh, We are increasingly seeing a, a desire to keep kids in their communities, to look for opportunities for diversion. I think we are uh, ready to accept the idea that every act of misconduct by a child doesn't necessarily require a 911 call. Uh, and so we are seeing the pendulum swing in the direction that I think Connecticut is aiming to do right now.
0: Are conversations going on within public school systems about how uh, they should be um, you know, dealing with uh, youth when they have typical adolescent behavior?
4: these conversations have been going on honestly for more than a decade Uh, the fact that they're continuing is a good sign and a bad sign Bad sign of course in the sense that we haven't quite resolved the problem but I think that schools and school administrators teachers are continuing to try to sort out, again, when they need to engage law enforcement and when they need to re- assume that responsibility of both teaching and managing behavior within the school setting itself. Things are getting better. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that we are, again, moving towards a system that is more humane, that is more focused on community services, and less focused on incarceration.
0: You know, there are, there, whenever we talk about this in Connecticut, you know, there is um, – the concern that there are, you know, a small number of youth who do need the, the advocates and and people who work with these um, these children say, you know, they do need some type of secure facility. You know, what are the options out there? What are like best practices so they're not in something that looks and feels and is like a jail?
4: Well, I think that's exactly the point. Um, I think the best practices are creating environments that don't look and feel like jails that aren't run by uh, run like jails. There are certainly examples around the country uh, many folks look to Missouri as an example where the system there has created and relied upon a series of smaller facilities uh, that house fewer individuals and that create a culture within those facilities that is much less punitive and doesn't feel like a correctional environment. I think we know what to do. I do think we actually know what works. We don't need to keep experimenting, and we don't need to keep doing research. Smaller, more humane, less corrections-like, focused on rehabilitation and treatment – allowing for the opportunity for connections between kids and adults, those are the kinds of environments that
5: are going to work.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to take a quick call. Josh is calling from Hartford. Josh, you're on the show.
5: Hi. Thanks for having my call, Lucy. I am I work in the Public Defender's Office in the Child Protection and Juvenile Delinquency Unit. And so I just, there was something that Representative Walker said about judges' abilities and, and discretion. I agree that judges I see in court are really frustrated with the lack of sort of options they have in terms of looking at a kid and sending a kid to a place that works. But something else that's happened over the last few years is that DCF has pushed really hard in court and successfully to take away discretion from judges. It used to be, for example, that when a kid was committed for a delinquency, the judge could pick the length of the sentence up to a year and a half. Now it's only a year and a half, neither more nor less in most cases. So there's no plea bargaining, a judge can't say nine months will do. And by the same token, it used to be a judge could order a kid placed in the training school or placed somewhere else. But now a judge can only say, committed to DCF. And then the department has complete discretion about how to treat that kid. Now, we can trust the department most of the time, perhaps. But, for example, the department started a uh, policy of not sending kids out of state. But we're a small state, and we don't always have the right treatment facilities. So there's a system now where there's less oversight of the department and more trust in the department, and I don't know if that's a good thing.
0: Well, Josh, thank you for that. I'll have uh, Marsha Levick respond, I know, because she's deputy director, chief counsel at the, the Juvenile Law Center. I mean, what do you think of that policy?
4: Um, I think that's a great point that Josh has raised, and the models vary across the country uh, many states do, in fact, commit children, in effect, as Josh described, to the state or county agency for placement. A state like Pennsylvania, for example, where juvenile law center is located, judges make those kinds of decisions. I think the key point that Josh made is that it risks the loss of oversight. It risks the transparency that we like to think we get out of our court system, providing opportunities for review and appeal as appropriate. Sometimes it's harder to get that kind of review uh, and opportunity to ask questions when decisions are completely allocated to an administrative agency.
0: Now, we're almost out of time. I wanted to turn back to Laura Herskovich, Deputy Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. You know, where does the state go from here? Again, and Marcia mentioned it, more than a decade. People talk about this here in Connecticut and nationwide, how to fix the system. Thank you. Yeah,
2: there's certainly a lot of work to be done. Anyone who wants to stay connected to these issues can uh, link in with our eAdvocates program. You can sign up for those uh, communications on our website, which is www.ctjja.org. Um, what the young people are telling us is that we need to invest in prevention in their communities. They're asking for affordable and safe housing, for positive activities, for exposure to a wide range of things to identify their interests, for better schools, more connection to safe schools, positive school climate, support for their families, and chances to build skills that would lead to solid jobs. I mean, the one thing I just want to make sure I include in this conversation, is, which really is an umbrella over every single aspect, very sadly and tragically, is very real racial and ethnic disparity and bias. So we have a really large program called The Color of Justice that we're working to raise awareness of the bias in the, in the entire system um, as, a, as a quick overview, you know, uh, African-American youth... Latino youth make up about a third of Connecticut's youth population. In detention, it's about 80% kids of color. At the, again, the deep end, quote unquote, of the system, it's about 85%. It's the same for the girls at the deep end. This is something that we cannot continue to ignore, even as we are doing a good job of shrinking Connecticut's juvenile justice system, reducing the number of children who are engaged with the juvenile justice system, the racial and ethnic disparities appear to be getting worse.
0: And we're gonna have to leave it there because we're out of time. I wanna thank Laura Herskovich, Deputy Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Also, Maureen Price Borland, Executive Director of Community Partners in Action. Thank you for coming in. And on the phone, Marsha Levick, Deputy Director and Chief Counsel at the juvenile law center. The session begins in just another month or so. We'll have to see what uh, transpires in terms of uh, continuing this movement to reform the juvenile justice system here in Connecticut. I want to thank all of our guests. Thank you for our listeners, uh, for your calls and your tweets. Uh, the show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kayon Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.